Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue to revisit the series Rediscovering the Holy Spirit with Dr. John. So let's get started as we learn about the presence of the Spirit in the Old Testament as we look into Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. You like reading biographies. I sometimes do. I like them because they allow me to see life through someone else's eyes. They invite me to imagine someone's perspective and to live through the experiences they had and the decisions they made. But I like biographies for another reason. They invite me to a time period in the past, a world that once was but no longer exists. And they invite me into a culture that is often unlike my own. Reading good biographies invite me to re-examine my own life and allow me to ask whether my worldview is too small. What would it be like to read a biography of the Holy Spirit? Well, at the outset, it would be a very different kind of biography. Most biographies begin with the birth of the person in question and then describe the world that person knew. But since the Holy Spirit is God, there would be no time when the Holy Spirit was young, for he has always existed. And since he is a spirit, he has no body, and he exists at all places at all times. So we can't locate him in just one place at one time. But that's just how a biography of the Holy Spirit might be different than a biography of a human being. But one of the similarities would be that the Holy Spirit really did interact with this world, and because of his presence, the world is a very different place. We first encounter the Holy Spirit in the very second verse of our Bible. There we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. But what was he up to? Many Bible teachers have noticed that the word for hovering is also used in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11, and there it's used of an eagle hovering over its nest or the nest of its young, protecting the nest and preparing the nest. And so here we have an image of the Holy Spirit protecting the creation and preparing the creation for that which is to follow, namely the six days in which God speaks order onto a chaotic creation, a world that was yet formless and void. See, some of the Psalms speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. That psalm speaks about the sun, the moon, and the earth, including the ground and the oceans, and then speaks about the animals that inhabit the ground and the seas. So that psalm speaks of the Holy Spirit giving life to all creatures. The interesting thing about the word spirit is that the word can also be translated as breath. The Holy Spirit puts his breath into the mouth of all creatures that live. When God created man in his own image, Genesis 2 says that he breathed his breath or in some fashion his spirit into us. That in some way the Holy Spirit was especially involved in the uniqueness of our creation as human beings, as image bearers of God. Job 34, 14 and 15 says that if God should take back his spirit to himself, all flesh would perish together and man would immediately return to dust. Here we see that the Holy Spirit not only gives life, he sustains life. His hovering over the creation is what keeps all things alive. And by the way, if you'll allow me to jump way ahead of myself, I would like to show you here at this thought of the Holy Spirit giving life, how similar this role of giving life to all things is exactly like his role of giving eternal life to those of us who believe in Christ. 
Jesus said that we must be born again, and then said that to be born again is to be, in his words, born of the Spirit. Whenever there is new life, either in creation or in our salvation, this life, wherever you find it is birthed, is by the Holy Spirit. And so in our imaginary biography of the Holy Spirit, we would have to begin our account by saying that the Holy Spirit is essential to the life of all things. Without his hovering presence, no life would have begun, and if he stopped hovering, all life would end instantly. And that's why in Genesis 6-3 we read, Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That passage seems to be saying that the Holy Spirit determines the length of every human being's lifespan. In ancient times, he gave long life, but now because of increased sin and rebellion, he shortens the life of everyone. And when he withdraws his presence, all die. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is basic to all life on earth. In some fashion, every living person has the Holy Spirit hovering over them. We might call this common grace. That's not to say that they've been born again, only that the Holy Spirit is striving with them, allowing them to draw breath and to live. That's quite a role for the Holy Spirit, but there's more. Let's go through our Old Testament and see how he's involved in the plan of God and in the individual lives of people. We soon become aware that not only is the Holy Spirit sustaining the lives of people, he actually equips people and provides them with ability to accomplish things. So, for instance, in Exodus 31, Moses calls two men, Ohaliab and Bazalel, to put together the tabernacle that God has described. And then in Exodus 31, verse 3, God says, I have filled him, that is, Bazalel, with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship. And so we learn that all the ability this man had came because the Holy Spirit was enabling him to build a tabernacle that would glorify God. Now, this testimony is not a one-time thing. In Numbers 27, verse 18, Moses is told of God's plan of succession. He says, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit of God, and lay your hand on him. The idea of laying on of hands was for the purpose of setting him aside as the next leader of Israel after Moses. And so the power to lead was a power that was given by the Holy Spirit. And when we come to the book of Judges, we find that many of the judges are given power to deliver Israel from the hand of their enemies because, we are told, the Holy Spirit came upon them. In the case of Samson, his great strength was never in his hair, as if his hair was somehow magical. In fact, his first sign of strength is recorded in Judges 14, verse 6, where it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore a lion to pieces. Now, it's clear Samson didn't understand this. His own misunderstanding about the meaning of his long hair is a great example. His hair was supposed to be a symbol of his willingness to surrender his will to God. He was under what in the Old Testament was called a Nazarite vow. As a part of his vow to God, he was to consume no alcohol, touch no dead thing, and not shave his hair. Never once does the Bible even hint at the idea that the strength was in his hair. Instead, it repeatedly claims that his unusual strength came from the Holy Spirit. Now let's move forward to King David. 1 Samuel 16.13 tells us that when Samuel had anointed him to become king, and the Spirit of the Lord, it says, rushed upon David from that day forward. We know that the Holy Spirit gave him the ability to lead God's people and to defeat God's enemies. So let's move forward again. 
And notice how often the Holy Spirit protected Israel from her enemies. Isaiah 63, 11 and 12 says that during the time of Moses and the exodus from Egypt, that God put his Holy Spirit in the midst of the Israelite community to protect them. In Haggai 2, verse 5, we're told when Israel seemed so small and unprotected, Israel was told, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. All they needed to survive was the Holy Spirit. And so we have seen how the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation, how he was involved in the life of Israel by enabling people to have skills, conquer their enemies, give leadership, find safety, and have unusual power. But before we move on, there's one more aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit that's quite extraordinary. The events we're going to describe take place during the time of Moses. The burdens of his leadership are getting heavier, and he tells God that he cannot bear the burden of all this people alone. He needs help. God then responds by telling Moses to gather together 70 men who are elders who are to assist Moses in the work. And so Moses did as he was commanded, gathering 70 worthy men and putting them around the tabernacle. So let me read what happened next. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. You know, this phenomenon, the work of the Holy Spirit and prophecy, is related to a central work the Holy Spirit does. If you were here yesterday, you heard me say that one of the key works of the Holy Spirit is to draw attention to the Father and the Son. And here we see that the Holy Spirit causes the elders of Israel to speak in the name of God, to draw attention to God. See, the history of prophecy in the Old Testament is a history of the work of the Holy Spirit. You can see the Holy Spirit upon Elijah, the first great prophet. Ezekiel, the prophet, constantly testifies as to how the Holy Spirit dealt with him in his prophetic work. A key passage is taken from Isaiah 61, verse 1. Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In other words, Isaiah says, the explanation of my ministry and the message I have as a prophet of God is because the Holy Spirit is upon me. Now, I have wanted to construct a biography of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament so we could see him everywhere at work. He's providing life, protecting, strengthening, and he's the reason why people hear the word of God. He's raising up kings and gifting people with skill to do work that would glorify God. But was the Holy Spirit working inside these people? Let's tackle that important question when we come back. This month we're broadcasting Volume 1 of Dr. Neufeld's newest series, The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in Revelation. This is the first of four volumes to be broadcast over the next several months, and each time we want to offer you the newest volume at a very special price. So for the month of March, Volume 1 of The Triumph of the Lamb, a study in Revelation on CD, is available for only $10. This 15-message volume covers Revelations chapter 1 to 5, including an in-depth study of the seven churches. Discover the book of Revelation like never before. And please remember all our Bible teaching programs and resources are possible only because of your generosity. So consider an important ministry gift this month. Call us to order The Triumph of the Lamb or to offer a ministry donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
given all this activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, you might ask, what kind of an experience did the Old Testament believers have with the Holy Spirit? Did the Holy Spirit actually indwell them or only rest on them or rush on them for a short period of time? In John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus promises his followers the Holy Spirit. In that passage, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, from this, a great many Bible teachers have thought that the Holy Spirit actually only was with the Old Testament saints or came upon them for a short period of time, but that he did not dwell inside anyone until Pentecost. Furthermore, in John 7, 39, Jesus says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for as of yet the Holy Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So again, it seems like Old Testament saints had not received the Holy Spirit, meaning he did not live inside them. But let's look at this one step at a time. What does the Old Testament say about the experience of the saints with the Holy Spirit? Well, in Numbers 27, verse 18, we are told that Joshua is a man in whom it says, is the Spirit. And that phrase gets repeated of Joshua in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. We've already noticed that in Exodus 31, verse 3, that Basileel, the craftsman of the tabernacle, was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 2, Ezekiel testifies that the Spirit entered into me, he says. In Micah 3, verse 8, Micah the prophet testifies, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. He indicates that he is filled with the Holy Spirit even as he is filled with power. And David, after he is caught in his sin and writes his plaintive psalm of confession, prays in Psalm 51, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He prays this as if he knew and had the Holy Spirit as some kind of a permanent possession. But there are other times when the Holy Spirit only seems to rest upon people for a period of time. That's true of Samson when the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him power. It's true of wicked King Saul when the Spirit came upon him and he involuntarily began to prophesy. But in both cases, these men were disobedient men and should not be taken as the standard for the experience of all godly saints. And yet there are a great many saints whom we are told that the Holy Spirit only rested upon. And this all presents us with a kind of conundrum. Clearly, when you come to the New Testament, Acts 2 presents us with a remarkable change in the activity of the Holy Spirit. But what is that change? And what experience did the Holy Spirit actually give Old Testament believers? Well, in order to answer that, I want to go to a very well-known passage from the book of Romans. Yes, the New Testament. I'm reading from Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. From reading this passage, it becomes clear that there are only two ways to live, according to the flesh, which, because it is devoid of the Spirit, eventually leads to death. And the other way is to live according to the Spirit, which, because he is the author and the sustainer of life, leads to eternal life. 
Now let's skip a few verses. Let's read Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If that's the case, it must have always been the case. Do you follow? It is not as if in the Old Testament someone could live according to the flesh and receive eternal life. Indeed, without the Holy Spirit, they would have been hostile to God. They would have refused to submit to God's law. The only way they could become pleasing to God, set their minds on things above, find God their source of joy, and willingly lived according to his precepts is, according to Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit. And that's precisely what the Old Testament shows us time and again. But where the New Testament is explicit, the Old Testament only hints at these matters. And yet we must ask the question, how can Genesis 5.22 possibly say that Enoch walked with God if he did not set his mind on the things of the Spirit? How could Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 6 believe God and it be counted to him as righteousness when the mind set on the flesh cannot believe God? Clearly, the Holy Spirit must have regenerated the heart of this man named Abraham. Yes, it is true that the Old Testament does not give us a complete doctrine of how the Holy Spirit interacts with people, but it does repeatedly tell us that the Holy Spirit was there in the lives of men and women who loved God. How else could they love God? But if all that's true, what could Jesus have meant when he said in John 7 that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given? Well, Jesus was a master in the Old Testament and knew the verses we have just read with a great deal more precision than we do. He was aware of those texts in which Old Testament saints claimed that they had the Holy Spirit in them. So what did Jesus mean? I think the answer is easier than we might think. Jesus knew that Pentecost would bring a greater, more powerful, and richer work of the Holy Spirit than had previously been known until then. In other words, after Pentecost, something new would begin. The Holy Spirit would come within them in a way that, in spite of the richness of the Spirit in the Old Testament saints, none of them had encountered the Spirit in the way in which he would be poured out after Pentecost. And that makes us wonder, what would that entail? And as we move through this series on the Holy Spirit, we will see that after Pentecost came a power to be witnesses to the gospel. Even though in the First Testament or the Old Testament there are converts from the nations around Israel, this is but a trickle compared to the flood of people who would find God in the face of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Furthermore, the power over indwelling sin would be stronger, as would the power over Satan and demonic forces. And as we will see, the Holy Spirit was about to pour out a series of spiritual gifts upon God's people that had not been known before. All of that means that our experience in the Holy Spirit is so much greater than what the Old Testament believers had ever imagined. But more than that, the Spirit would create a new people not like Israel had been, a mixture of ones who lived by faith and those who rejected the faith. Instead, a new community would be created in which they would all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament looked forward to that. Ezekiel, the prophet, promised that God had said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. There is a promise of an age to come, the age of the Holy Spirit. And all of this would make us marvel at what we have inherited. Hebrews 11, which lists the Old Testament saints, says that they, through faith, 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. All of this was done by the power of the Spirit. But what if we have received a greater portion than they? What then? Perhaps we need to rediscover the third person of the Trinity. I once read a story of a very wealthy entrepreneur who collected rare and expensive paintings. He read of one rare find in a magazine and instructed his buyer to find the painting and buy it. And there was a long search that went on. And finally, the buyer came back and told this wealthy entrepreneur, we finally found the painting. It's in one of your warehouses. You yourself bought this work years ago. You know, perhaps it's time for believers to understand what Christ has purchased for us. He has given us His Spirit. We already have the Holy Spirit. Let's find out what we have. John, this is a perhaps a, a message that people weren't uh, assuming would take place as we look into the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But can I ask you the question, did the Holy Spirit operate differently in people's lives in the Old Testament than perhaps now? I think the answer really is this yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of Old Testament individuals and brought them to salvation. I mean, how else would we explain Abraham's faith or David's faith or the faith of the great men and women of the Bible in the, in the era before the coming of Christ? So I want to say, yes, the Holy Spirit worked in a very similar way then. But at the same time, I'm going to say that, and I'll, I'll mention this more as we carry on in this series, but the Holy Spirit works in a powerfully different way now that Christ has come. So it's the same Holy Spirit bringing the same salvation, yet something has been added to his work that was not there before. Now, I want to add to that something that, you know, I brought out before, but if you read something like Psalm 119 or even Psalm 19, I mean, you get this uh, feeling that, you know, how I love your law and this, this attraction that Old Testament saints had for the law of God, for the word of God, doing the work of God, all of that comes from the Holy Spirit who's given them that love for the law of God. I guess what I'm saying in practical terms is I'm talking about regeneration. Regeneration is the awakening of the heart to find God and his ways to be abundantly attractive. Until the heart is awakened or given new life, none of that's possible. So clearly, that was the experience of Old Testament saints. Thanks so much, John. Return with us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean cruise. One week of cruising the pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God's people. These events are 
are incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.